This is an RNZ podcast. Good morning. Uh, yesterday at 2.11pm, Fakari White Island erupted. There were two explosions, one after the other, in quick succession. Initial reports indicated it was possible there were up to 100 individuals located on the ground uh, or around the vicinity of the island at the time of the eruption. This week, once again, we heard a New Zealand Prime Minister speaking to reporters about a tragedy on our soil in which citizens of several nations lost their lives. For many, seeing that unfold in the media, it was an echo of Christchurch in March this year. And, come to think of it, Christchurch back in 2011, though a different Prime Minister then and a very different event. But the familiar feelings that evoked in many were captured by the senior writer at the New Zealand Herald, Steve Braunius, on the day, under the headline, The Latest Tragedy in a Year of Grief. As a name, as a concept, White Island is about to take on a new and terrible resonance. The first thing it'll mean when we hear it mentioned, like the roll call of names, Tangiwai, Erebus, Aramoana, Wahine, Pike River, is death. And this week also reminded some people of the Pike River mine disaster in 2010 for a more specific reason, the particular distress resulting from the delay in retrieving those who died there because the environment was considered too toxic and too volatile to approach. One was the brother of the tour guide Hayden Marshall Inman who died on the island. And on three show The Project on Tuesday, Mark Inman sang the praises of the chopper pilots who launched a rescue mission when it wasn't safe to do so and tried to save his brother. They found my brother laying down. Um, they lifted him up, put him in a, on a bit of a rise um, beside a stream and, and, and kept him safe and carried on saving the ones that needed saving. So they, they did a fantastic job, They're unsung heroes. And, and thank God they did because they, they pulled some people back that may not have survived. That's the Kiwi way. It's the Kiwi way, that's what we do. One of those pilots was Tom Storey, who also told the project that night, I'd rather break a few rules and save some lives than sit here wondering what we could have done. And Mark Inman went on to say this when prompted by News Hub's Patrick Gower. We're, we're a nation that get on and get things done, but currently it's people in the higher-ranking orders that are putting red tape in front of things that's slowing the process down. You know, when you look at it, and some people have described it as like Pike River, does it feel that way to you? Yeah, it, it certainly is. All this bureaucracy is turning into like a, a Pike River situation, you know. We all know health and safety is, is important. But when health and safety starts to become a barrier to retrieval, that's, that's, when, it's, that's when you get frustrated. And Mark Inman was not at all convinced that it wasn't safe post-eruption to travel to the island. Dare I say it, you've got Wellingtonians that are, that are geotologists, you know, trying to tell them that, oh, there's still murmurs, there's this and that. Well, the island's active. It's going to murmur all the time. And after that, on the project, News Hub's Patrick Gower summed up like this. Yeah, some real anger and frustration, and I can help explain why as well. Uh, in terms of those eight bodies that are still out there, I'm told that they could be retrieved within 15 minutes uh, by those helicopter pilots that know where they are. In fact, they've been put in places where they could easily go back and get them. In 15 minutes, it could have been done yesterday or any time from daylight today, they could have got those bodies back, and that's why there's anger and frustration about it. It's only natural for people to want to believe that they should be able to retrieve friends and loved ones in spite of the danger highlighted by experts and the authorities. And those with the rescue skills and the requisite courage will inevitably be frustrated at being unable to help. Chopper pilot Mark Law was another who told News Hub this on Wednesday. 
the conditions are perfect. They were yesterday, today, so I don't think there's, I, I don't understand why they wouldn't go. Uh, I'd go. Well, News Hub's Patrick Gow wasn't the only one channeling the pilot's frustration. A pilot who flew badly injured survivors off Fakari White Island says he'd go back today to collect those killed in the eruption, but it's not his call. That was Lisa Owen on RNZ's checkpoint on Wednesday, and 14 minutes later she asked the pilot Tim Barrow this. Do you think those um, victims should be off there by now? Oh, I wish they were. Um, you know, I wish they were. Once again, uh, you know, I appreciate people uh, are making decisions that they think are the right ones. However, I also believe that um, sometimes you just got to act. And shortly after that on Wednesday on the project, News Hub's Patrick Gower took it up a level, literally, when he took to the air with Mark Inman and aggrieved chopper pilot Tom Storey. Mark, right now, looking at the island, what are you thinking? A recovery mission that could be done is perfect conditions to go out. It's gut-wrenching. But Tom Storey and Mark Inman did more than just air their frustration about what Patrick Gower called a government refusal to get the bodies back. He turned it towards Wellington. But someone sitting behind a desk saying it's no good, yet you come out here and have a look and it's perfect. Yeah, I mean, what would you say to them if, they, if, if you could say something to them right now? Pull your finger out and get moving. Yeah, I mean, Tom, I'm sitting with you, mate, and you're actually shaking with anger right now. Uh, yeah, just... Oh, I just can't... Just speechless. Do you think the Prime Minister and officials should come up here and do what we're doing now? Have a look. And I challenge Jacinda Ardern to come out and have a look for herself. Tom's story went on to tell Patrick Gower he had taken the Prime Minister's husband, Clark Gayford, to Whakari White Island during the filming of his TV fishing show last year. I got her husband off safely, let me get the rest, he said on the project. And back on land, Patrick Gower told the project's viewers that Mark Inman had already put that in writing to the Prime Minister, asking for her permission to go it alone to get his brother back. A body at all, I'm writing to ask for a pardon for my actions of a personal recovery. Now, the Prime Minister's office got back to him, said it was an incredibly tough time for him and his whanau, and that they had passed his email on to the Minister of Police, who will be getting in touch with him very soon. Now, I can tell you that I've been talking to Mark Inman, and the Minister of Police has not got in contact, despite it being a number of hours. Police Minister Stuart Nash did reply later, and the answer was no. But on Twitter, Patrick Gower copped criticism for dragging the Prime Minister's family into the issue and for stirring the emotions of people in grief, as well as some of the pilots who'd been through the worst of times 48 hours earlier. And Patrick Gower followed up with this tweet. 20 minutes. That's what's needed to get the bodies off White Island. The chopper pilots know their stuff. The Prime Minister needs to listen to them and the families. We need to give them that 20 minutes. Here, the former political editor, urging the Prime Minister to disregard expert advice and overturn police instructions, crossed over into campaigning journalism. But after two nights of seeing and hearing the mounting frustration of those who wanted to get the job done, the project's viewers would have been wondering, what was the problem? Well, Patrick Gower had this summary for them on Wednesday night. Two things are preventing that from happening. The threat of an eruption uh, there and also uh, that gas, that gas that's kind of going over it, those toxic sort of fumes. Uh, from what I could see today, those toxic fumes were really not a problem. They're totally blown away. So that problem is out of it. They're asking for 20 minutes uh, out there, guys. Thanks, Paddy. Uh, really compelling report. Compelling, yes. Comprehensive, 
not really. When the recovery mission by Defence Force personnel did get underway on Friday morning, the whole thing took several hours, not 20 minutes. Experts were assessing the risk and making recommendations based on much more than what Patrick Gower called toxic sort of fumes and gas clouds that he could see from the helicopter five kilometres away on Wednesday night. And those experts were not on the project that night. The night before, they did have University of Canterbury volcanologist Tom Wilson on the show, and he said this on the show about the danger. Um, they'll be very concerned about a second, another eruption occurring, which could lead to um, more volcanic debris or, or even those um, pyroclastic surges that I was, I was describing before, um, affecting areas where they're looking to try and um, access. But that was roughly half of just the one minute he was given on the show on the Tuesday. Shortly before that, on News Talk ZB's Drive show the same day, Heather Duplessy Allen had her own first take on the role of first responders when she said the whole thing felt like Pike River all over again to her. If the private citizens hadn't gone to rescue the injured, would they still be there? Would police have gone for them? These are the questions that we need answered before we know if police made the right call. But regardless, we're going to have to make a decision as a country about what we want our first responders to do. Another interesting use of we there. Are we really all going to have to redefine the job description of our first responders? And if so, on what grounds? Heather Duplessy Allen didn't say in a comment piece that was mainly a series of unanswered questions. The day after that, reporters in Fakatane covering the story voiced discontent about not having questions at a short, sharp press conference, which eventually prompted the police minister to demand greater transparency from police leaders. Thank you very much. This is totally unreasonable. We've had four minutes. Really? Seven News' Robert Avadia quick to voice the frustration felt in the room. You've got a lot of people dead in your country and they're cutting short a press conference after a few minutes. Another echo there of the Pike River disaster where Australian journalist Ian Higgins confronted police and mine bosses in press conferences in a way which startled both them and local reporters. And in hindsight, he was right about them not being as forthcoming as they should have been. But this week, it wasn't just Wellington-based office health and safety types, as Mark Inman intimated, who believed that Fakari White Island was unsafe for retrieval missions after the eruption. But it is entirely legitimate still for media to wonder whether a risk-averse culture might have influenced the decision-makers' choices on that, and the prospect of an official inquiry picking over people's actions on the day might have had an influence too. Writing on scoop.co.nz, Gordon Campbell reckoned that the first responders were able to do what they did on Monday only because they did it too fast for police to have the chance to stop them. And then he looked back at the Pike River inquiry for pointers. The Royal Commission dismissed the criticism that a rescue attempt might have been possible between the first explosion and the second explosion five days later. However, the Commission has also criticised the cumbersome nature of the emergency response which could have impeded a rescue had one proved possible. And what the inquiry into this week's tragedy has to say about that will be interesting when it's all done. For journalists, emergency mode is becoming increasingly familiar these days. Reporters across the media, many of whom are now experienced at emergency journalism, did a fine job bringing what was known to be true to the information-hungry public, and they also conveyed the lack of clarity in what had yet to be confirmed. But even in the absence of some key facts from official sources, even two and three days after the eruption, most media didn't speculate on what was not known or play fast and loose with people's emotions. 
The project show on three last Tuesday allowed several of those people who did what they could at the scene to tell their stories in their own words. And they also showed how Fakatane and specifically Ngāti Awa, responded to the crisis too. But it wasn't long before difficult and raw questions arose about whether people should have been in harm's way at all, one way or another. As News Hub at Six host Mike McRoberts told viewers on Tuesday night, overseas media were putting those questions fairly forcefully. The eruption has made headlines all around the world, with many news agencies and families asking why tourists were allowed anywhere near a live volcano in the first place. The Washington Post quoted the mother of newlyweds from the US as saying she was livid they were allowed in such a dangerous place. And when Monash University volcanologist Ray Cass called White Island a disaster waiting to happen for many years, it was not ignored by our media. This is not a volcano that can be trusted even at times when the alert levels are low. Volcanologist Raymond Cass says it was a disaster waiting to happen. There are many volcanic hazards which could all conspire at the same time to produce a disaster. John Campbell asked the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern about that in Whakatane on TVNZ's Breakfast News on Tuesday morning. Had we, have we become too casual about the safety on what was an active volcano? And again, these because these are um, questions that go to um, the heart of the issue, um, you'll forgive why uh, I, I don't wish to, to get ahead of what needs to be really a proper investigation with people with expertise. But in a live interview just before that, Duncan Garner on the AM show pressed the Prime Minister for a prognosis on the injured. The burns, now the fact you've sent them around the country would indicate that these are very, very serious burns because we've heard that temperatures could have been 900 degrees. So, I mean, that's huge. Um, Given that, are they survivable, these burns? What's the early advice? All all I can say is that there are a number who are in critical condition. Um, Beyond that, I can't give specifics um, around some of those numbers. And obviously you'll appreciate that that information, as we have it to hand, is is information that that those um, working across the operation are looking to provide directly to, to family members. But in fact, Duncan Garner didn't seem to appreciate the families needed the personal details before his viewers and listeners. How many children, Prime Minister, uh, have been caught up in this? Uh, That that question was asked um, this morning as well. Um, uh, That's not something I can confirm this morning, Duncan. Duncan Garner wasn't letting that drop. Can we assume, though, that there are are a number of kids or some kids, uh, some little, little kids involved here? Oh, look, that, that's just, Duncan, something, uh, simply that's not for me to confirm. That If you'll um, of, forgive me, that's something okay. I wish to leave to, to the police. Okay. Well, it was indeed a matter best left to police. Duncan Garner's way of asking Jacinda Ardern if there should have been tourists on Whakari White Island at all was this. I'm going to emails on, on every sort of 30 seconds here this morning from people saying, why do we yep. go out to this volcano if it's so unpredictable? And if it's so unpredictable, let's, yep. let's stop ourselves from going there because we can't even climb trees in the schoolyard. If those hypothetical school playgrounds were sited on the cusp of volcanic craters, that might have made some sense, but otherwise it didn't. However, the whole concept of adventure tourism is now being discussed by the media, and as Gordon Campbell at Scoop pointed out, by definition, adventure always includes a certain level of risk, but the regulations that govern risk management, he said, often allow commercial operators to make the day-to-day judgments. Until an accident happens, such warnings readily become part of the sales package and get treated as a marginal thrill factor. They don't get portrayed as a palpable danger that's likely to kill any customers who happen to be in the vicinity at the wrong moment and without any warning. However, the same could also be said of some media reports of adventure tourism attractions. 
For example, last Tuesday, under the headline, Why Was Tours Still Operating?, a former political reporter turned travel writer for Stuff, Brooke Sabin, said that the decision-making should be taken away from those who have a financial interest and put into the hands of experts who know more than anyone. Back in June, he himself wrote about a trip with White Island Tours at a time when the island was on alert level 2 and additional staff were going ahead of tour groups to assess the conditions. Brooke Sabin mentioned the apparent dangers in his article, but it also served as an endorsement with this conclusion. Travel is ultimately about creating moments you'll never forget, just like this one. None of us will ever get to Mars, but this is the next best thing. Now it seems unlikely any of us will get to Whakari White Island on foot any time soon, and the risks and rewards of adventure tourism are inevitably being officially reviewed. The media play a big part in publicising the rewarding experiences of adventure tourism. Now they'll have to scrutinise the renewed efforts to weigh up the risks as well.